It's very clear what it's talking about in context of the whole book of Ephesians. And we'll get to that in a minute. So let me kind of remind you. And for some of you, maybe it's the first time of seeing the big picture of Ephesians. Just what, what's going on in this, in this letter that Paul wrote to the people in the city of Ephesus. There's a church that the Apostle Paul himself started, and he pastored it for about three years. And now he's gone off doing other work, and he's writing a letter back to these people that he dearly loves. So he begins in his beginning the book of Ephesians for the first couple of chapters. But the first three chapters, um, he begins with explaining just the wonders of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be in Christ. And that's the term he uses over and over and over and over again, being in Christ. You know, that's a really important term in this day and age. Because I'm telling you, I, you know, so you rub shoulders. If you're an engineer, you rub shoulders with engineers. If you're a firefighter, you rub shoulders with en- firefighters. An attorney with attorneys. I rub shoulders with people who teach theology. It's a big part of what I do. They preach and teach. And... I'm absolutely amazed at what I'm hearing coming out of mouths anymore. Kind of like this idea that there's no such thing as really being in Christ. Kind of like the whole world is in Christ. And I'm saying that's not what the Apostle Paul says. He says you can be in Christ and you can be not be in Christ. And so over and over he's saying if you're a person who's met Jesus as Savior, then you're in Christ. Now all this stuff's going to, this all this wonderful stuff's going to take place. But you have to come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. So over and over in Ephesians, Paul, you know, 2,000 years ago keeps saying, you need to be in Christ, you need to be in Christ, you need to be in Christ. You know, so he spends his first three chapters just talking about it. He uses every imaginable word he can pull out of his vocabulary to try to make all these descriptions of how wonderful it is to be in Christ and how knowing Christ changes everything for the better. doesn't say it will be for easier, but it will be for eternally and even today, for the better. Then he goes on in the book to explain that because we are in Christ, that life will be different than it was before we were in Christ. Matter of fact, if you say, yeah, I'm really in Christ, but your life never changed, Paul would say, I'm not so sure you're in Christ. He says your life will be different. He talks about how in the church we can have something, because we're changing, that we can become something that no one else on earth can become that we are the only organization, the only gathering in the world that we can become something that no one else can because we have something no one else has. That we can live in true loving community where diverse people live together in unity. That the church can be a place where all worldly divisions are put aside where race and status and political perspective and anything else that divides people causes them to fight, causes conflict, that, that even a Packer fan and a Bear fan can love each other in the church. That's really what he's talking about. Even anything that divides us is, becomes poultry and small and unimportant. Matter of fact, he's saying if it doesn't, you're not really getting what it means because you might be in Christ, but you're not living it out. That all those things that divide are put aside because we are all now unified by being brothers and sisters of God with Jesus in the church. So that's what Paul goes on talking. Then he goes on to explain that as we function together then in this loving unity, that something happens. We begin to change from the inside out. We begin to be transformed. That in Christ we go from, some of the things he says, we go from being selfish to sharing. And he defines these. In the whole second chapter 4, he just kind of lists them. 
from selfish to sharing, from oppressors to people who mutually submit to one another. Even in a culture, he's saying this in a culture, a male-dominated, Roman-dominated culture, and he says basically this, you know what? Even you people of power, God's plan is for you in Christ to mutually submit. He says, wives, you know what? And husbands, you're going to submit to each other. He says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. He says, you know what? You're, you're over them, but you know what? You leave, treat them in such a way there's mutual submission to one another. He says the transformation, he says we go from liars to truth tellers, from haters to lovers. He says that as we continue to live in Christ, that we put off all the old divisive. And that's the word I want you to think of in Ephesians. Doing away with divisiveness. That's what he's talking about. We put away the old, divisive, selfish ways and put on true righteousness, which comes through transformed hearts. And Paul says it's all the work of the Spirit. It's not because we try harder. It's all because we allow the Spirit to work within us. And then Paul says that as we experience all of this transformation and express all this loving unity, that something amazing happens. This is a thing that only we can do that the church then becomes a symbol for all of eternity of the goodness and the power and the wonder and the glory of God. That for all of eternity, the church will reveal what can happen, what can happen. And that's the thing about Ephesians. It's talking about what can be when sinful people are changed by Jesus and unified together in Christ. So that's what Paul's been talking about to this point. This, this is the big picture of what he's been talking about. He's been painting this picture of this beautiful picture of what can be, what God desires for us, what living uh, lives of blessing we can have by being in Christ. He talks about it's positive. He says it's optimistic. That's being a Christian. And he could have just said, Amen. Closed the book and mailed it off. But he didn't. He added this last section. He added what we call, remember, he didn't put chapters and verses in there. What we have is Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. And this is basically what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. He says, oh yeah, I think I better tell you something else before I finish. It's all been wonderful. It's all been good. God's got awesome plans for you all. And he says, this is what I want to tell you in closing. He says, by the way. The devil wants to keep all this good stuff from happening. This is all the promise God has for you. He wraps up this thing in the armor of God. He's saying this. Just understand something. All this stuff is what God wants for you, uh, but you need to be aware of something. The devil wants to keep all this good stuff from happening. He wants to ruin any unity and hinder any transformation that could serve to bring glory to God because he hates God. And he hates God's people. That's what this section on the armor of God is all about. Paul's saying that the devil wants to ruin God's good plan for his people. But this is what he says. Now, if you stop there, you can go, oh, my goodness. I've got to be afraid of the devil. But that's not his message. He says this, basically. He says, but don't worry about it. Don't fear. Because God has given us all we need to succeed. So with this in mind, let's take a look at what Paul says here today. That we'll look um, today. We're going to look at this this first part, and over the next couple of weeks, um, we'll cover cover the verses. We're going to do an introductory part of it today. So grab your Bible, open up to the book of Ephesians, chapter six, and we're going to read three verses together today. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Are you there? Your Bibles automatically fall open to Ephesians? They should. Mine does. It honestly does. Ephesians 6, the first three verses of this section, 10 to 12. It says, finally. So remember, it's a conclusion to what he's been saying. After all the stuff I've said, finally. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And then in the coming weeks he's going to say, therefore, Take up the full armor of God, and he's going to talk about how those things work. But think of it. Look at that verse, first, three, first three verses. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces, against this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So, what do we find here in this Paul's introductory section, his last section where he's kind of going, oh yeah, and by the way, I've got something else to tell you. Well, basically that section I read, you could boil it down to, to four main thoughts that Paul is teaching. We're going to mention those four thoughts and then we'll look at each one of them. We'll look at three of them together today. And these are the four thoughts that Paul basically has just said in, in this section. First of all, he says, God's plan is for his church to win by his strength. So there's a battle going on, but listen, um, by my strength, the strength of his might, be strong. So God's plan is for his church to win by his strength. Second thing is this, there is a devil that's real. There's a real devil. We're going to talk about that. And then the next thing he says, and the devil has a scheme or a method or a plan to destroy the plan of God. We wrestle against it. And then he says, finally, and God has given us all we need to succeed. And that's all the coming verses. So today, let's look at the first three of these statements, but we're going to do them in reverse order. And then we're going to, in the following weeks, we'll look at the, the, the rest of it. So let's talk about what Paul says here. Um, and it's interesting here that he says something without explanation. Um, he just says, with all explanation, something, because the people of his day just simply understood that it is true. But it's something that many people in our Western mindset do not believe is true. And many, even in this room, may say they believe is true, but they don't seem to act like they believe that it's true. And it's this. There is a very real devil. There's a very real devil. You might have, ask yourself this question. If you're in your place of employment, especially if you work in a professional setting, would you feel comfortable saying there's a very real devil? In this culture today, you would probably not feel very comfortable saying that. You think, well, people will think I'm weird. People will think I'm odd. You know, what I really believe is... Paul's making a point here that we need to get at before we can look at anything else. There is a very real devil. You see, Paul understood that we are in a spiritual battle. 
But the devil is real, and he is opposed to God and his people, and that the devil has an army of demons that do his bidding, and they work to control the spiritual realm that exists all around us. I didn't understand. There's a spiritual realm around us. That's what he's referring to here. And I understand one time I've been really fortunate. I've been able to go two weeks and spend a week at a time with, with Jack Hayford. You know who Jack Hayford is? Jack Hayford is, I think, one of the most brilliant and godly men of, our, of the last hundred years. I was able to go eat in his house and spend a week with him. And, and he talked about how the spiritual realm, and I never thought of this, is more real than our physical realm. He, and the guy's, the guy's literally, he's a genius IQ, so you talk to him and it's like he's off the charts smart and you can't follow half of what he's saying sometimes. But he's talking about metaphysics. And he's talking about how this is made up of nothing. He's pounding on his pulpit. I'm like, no, it's made out of plastic. He's like, well, plastic really isn't anything. He's talking about atoms and how atoms are just spinning things that are more space than they are anything. And, and he's talking about, he goes, and God spoke this out of the spiritual realm. He said the spiritual realm exists first. And out of the spiritual realm, God speaks the physical realm into being. That's why it says in creation that God spoke into existence that which was not. That he just spoke and there was light and he spoke and there was water and he spoke and there was earth. He spoke and there was trees. All those trees in my backyard, he spoke. They came from nothing and they became something. And that's the creation that only God can do. And so the Apostle Paul understands in biblical, um, the biblical story is always verified that there's a spiritual realm where God and, and the devil exist. And it's real. Matter of fact, it's more real than this because this realm is temporary. What do we know about this realm? It's going to be done away with, according to the Bible. But that realm won't. And so Paul is pointing out here that, this, that there's this idea, there's this spiritual realm that exists around us. And he understood something about that spiritual realm. Paul understood that the devil in that realm is very real. And he's a very real foe. And he understood something that, that even if some people in our culture would say the devil, what they really mean is this. They would say, oh, the word devil, that just means personified evil. They would say there's evil and there's good in this kind of cosmic malaise. And Paul's saying, no. There's a very real devil. And he's not personified evil. That he is a he in the same sense that God is a he. And listen, I'm not saying they're equal. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But that he is a he in the same sense that God is a he. He is a personality with a mind and emotions and a will. And that it is his will to oppose God's will and to destroy anything that brings glory to God so that puts the church in the center of the devil's crosshairs. See, I need, uh, I need to begin with this point today because I wonder if we really believe this anymore. And friends, if we don't, we won't do what we must do to stand against him, and that will give him an opportunity to thwart God's plans, and that will include hindering our transformation in Christ's likeness and the development of a community of loving unity that God plans for his church to be. See, if we don't recognize the reality of a real enemy that is fighting against us, we will allow him to subtly hinder and destroy God's best for us. So Paul just says, there's a devil. So today we must begin by simply acknowledging 
that the devil and his demons are real and they are opposed to every one of us in this room today. That has to be the starting point. There is a devil and he's real. He's not personified evil. It's not yin and yang. It's not you know light and dark. It's a real God and a real devil. And they're fighting. The devil's fighting against God. Now, Scripture does not give us a lot of insight. Regardless of some of the charismatic books you read, the Bible does not give us a lot of insight into the devil and the spiritual realm that he functions in. Often what happens in Scripture is Scripture just states the devil's existence. But we do have some glimpses in the spiritual realm, and I want to look at one of those today because I think it's maybe the clearest picture that is found in the scripture of the spiritual realm that's existing and the fact that there's a battle going on. And it's found in the book of Daniel, chapter 10. So grab your Bibles and open up to the Old Testament major prophet Daniel. This is the you know, Daniel and the lion's den guy. Open up to that book. If you, can't, if you don't know where it is, open to the beginning of your Bible, find a table of contents, and find what page it's on. And turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, because you want to put a bookmark in this section. So here, Daniel, this prophet, a prophet is somebody who God speaks to, and that person then speaks to the people for God. So this prophet is writing about a vision that he had, and how God sent an angel to explain the vision, and about a spiritual battle that occurred in the process. So let's look at Daniel chapter 10. We're looking at the first 14 verses. And I'm reading the New Living Translation today. It makes it a little clearer. Very good, very good translation. It says, okay, verse 1, Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, had another vision. He understood the vision concerned events certain to happen in the future, times of war and great hardship. When this vision came to me, I, Daniel, had been in mourning for three whole weeks. All that time I had eaten no rich food. No meat or wine crossed my lips. I used no fragrant lotions until those three weeks had passed. On April 23rd, as I was standing on the bank of the great Tigris River, I looked up and I saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like a torch. His arms and his feet shone like polished bronze and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. Only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men with me saw nothing, but they were suddenly terrified and ran away to hide. So I left there. All, I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me. My face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. Then I heard the man speak, and when I heard the, the sound of his voice, I fainted, and I lay there with my face to the ground. Just then a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling to my hands and my knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, you are very precious to God. So listen carefully to what I say to you. Stand up, for I have been sent to you. When, when, when he said this to me, I stood up, still trembling. Then he said, Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer. 
But from the, for, but for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me. And I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now I am here to explain what will happen to your people in the future. For this vision concerns a time yet to come. Let's stop right there. Now that's the stuff you can make TV movies about. Right? Anybody who tells you the Bible's boring has never read it. This is absolutely amazing situation. What do we, we see here? Daniel, this man of God, this prophet, is praying for an answer. He has a vision. He doesn't know what it means. He's praying for an answer. And it says, the spirit prince of Persia stops God's angel from delivering the message. And then God sends a stronger angel, Michael the archangel, to assist the angel so then fight the fight so that the message can be delivered. Friends, that's the kind of stuff that is going on around us right now. There's a spiritual realm beyond our physical realm and there is a battle raging. The devil and his army opposing the work of God. Now understand, these are not two equal opposing armies. It's not like God is is laying awake saying, oh my goodness, how are we going to fight the devil and his foes? No. God is supreme. And God is the creator of everything. God created these beings that chose to rebel against him and, and, and he will totally defeat them one day that fits his plan perfectly when he says it is right to accomplish what he wants done. So it's not like equal opposing forces. God is supreme. The devil knows it. And he's fighting what God wants in the time he has left. But for now, the battle is real, and the devil's desire is to defeat and derail God's church and God's people. That's what we see in the scriptures. And I think we absolutely need to believe this, or we will be completely rendered ineffective. There's a real battle going on. Now, understanding that, that's the first point. Understanding that, let's look at the the second statement from our text that builds upon it. It says, the devil is real, and this very real devil has a scheme to destroy God's plan. Look at verse 11 of Ephesians. Turn back to Ephesians. Hope you kept your fingers there. Verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the scheme of the devil. Something really important to get here. Explain to you that that this word, devil, When God chose to call the devil the devil, he didn't do it because it's like, you know, all you guys lately, all these people having babies, they're all having to choose names. What cool names like Sterling? You know, I mean, these are cool names. All these different names that that people have come up with. Um, But when God named the devil, he did it because the name he gave the devil tells us who the devil is and what the devil does. Because the word devil just doesn't mean like devil. The word devil means slanderer, accuser, or liar. That's what the word means. So God could have said, and the liar, or the slanderer, or the accuser. That's what the word devil means. That's his name. And his name reveals his scheme. Remember it said here? And he has a scheme 
to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, his name reveals his scheme. And this is so important to understanding what spiritual warfare is and what spiritual warfare isn't. His method to try to make our lives um, less than they're intended to be in Christ has to do with his, his scheme of being a liar and an accuser and a slanderer. Understand something, the devil can't kill you outright. Some people give the devil way too much, like, oh, this happened in my house, the devil did it. No, he didn't. The devil can't kill you outright. He can't make your car blow up. He, you know, he can tempt you, because the battle is in the minds, we're going to find out, in a, in a soul. He can tempt you into a lifestyle where you could directly or indirectly kill yourself, but he can't crash your plane, and he can't sink your boat in the middle of Lake Michigan. Because if he could have on 4th of July, he would have sunk my boat, and me and Suzanne and and Miranda and Brett would have all died. Because he'd just assume I wasn't here and they weren't here. He can't do that. What he can do is to tempt and influence and deceive you so that you live a life less than God desires for you, the life, the, 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 the life of love and transformation and unity that he's been talking about in all of the book of Ephesians to this point on. He uses slander and accusation and lies to accomplish his attacks. Let me explain what I mean. You say, wow, I didn't see it like that before. Think about Eve Eve has a distinction. Not only are Adam and Eve the first couple, but Eve has a distinction that no one would ever want to have. She was the devil's first human target. She was the first person the devil went after. And think about this. How did he approach Eve? What did he do? Did he walk up to Eve and go, I'm going to kill her. God loves her, so I hate her, so I'm going to kill her. I'm going to, I'm going to poison her, or I'm going to make her fall off a cliff. No, he didn't do any of that. He slandered God to her. He slandered God to her according to his who he is. He's a slanderer, right? What did he say? How did he how did he get at Eve? He said things to her. It was all about a battle up here. He said, God doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to keep you inferior. God doesn't want you to know good and evil. He doesn't want to give you that, 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 to make you understand more. God is limiting you, Eve. He doesn't, doesn't really want the best for you. Eve, eat the apple, follow me, and you will really live. Read the story, it's exactly what the devil does. He slanders God. He lies about God, because none of that that he said was true about God. The opposite was true about God. But he, he slanders God to Eve, and tells her all these things about God that aren't true. The devil slandered God. He lied about him. He defamed his character to get Eve to reject God and accept him. And friends, his tactics haven't changed. Isn't that exactly what he does with us? So I'm hoping what happens today as I explain this, you're going to say, wow, the battle is really raging, and it rages every day. It raged this morning in my home. Let me explain this to you. Think for a moment about your thoughts about other people and yourself. I want you to see the battle. That's where it rages. Think for a moment about your thoughts about others and yourself. 
Maybe negative thoughts about your spouse or a child or a friend or a coworker or me or yourself. Out of the clear blue, you're just sitting there enjoying your tea on your deck, looking at your variety of trees in your backyard. And suddenly the thought comes to you with the Bible on your lap. Sally never said hi to me at church today. In fact, Sally, when I looked at her, I'm pretty sure she frowned at me instead of smiled. And I think I'm pretty sure when she saw me, she actually turned and walked the other way and she avoided me on purpose. You know what? I'm tired of Sally. We don't have any Sallys in our church, right? I tried to pick a name that no one has. You know what? I'm tired of Sally. You know what? I wish Sally would just go somewhere else. And I'm not talking to Sally ever again. Now, don't don't you make me believe I'm the only one that has some kind of scenario similar to that. Change the name, change the location, change the situation, but we all have it all the time. Ask yourself a question. This is what I've learned to do over the years. I ask myself this question when that thought, you know what's weird? It, every time I cut the grass, all of a sudden I notice I'm thinking all this negative stuff about people. I'm going, here's the question you have to ask. Where did that thought come from? Where did it come from? There's only a few options. First option, did that thought come from God? No. You don't even have to wonder if it came from God. Because what have we learned in Ephesians? God's heart is to bring unity among people. It's never to disunify and divide. So the thought didn't come from God. Did it come from self? And it's kind of an easy... Some people think there's no no way to even have a thought from self. And I'm not sure there is because of this kind of thinking. You say, well, it just came from self. It's neutral. Well, if I'm in Christ and the Spirit of the Lord is changing me and I'm feeling like Jesus instead of faking like Jesus, meaning Jesus is transforming and I'm feeling towards people the way He feels towards people. He actually loved people so much they nailed nails to His hand that He said, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No one's ever done anything nearly that bad to me. He loves people that much. You're killing them. And he goes, God, forgive them. They don't know any better. And so so out of Jesus' self didn't come stinking Sally. Can't stand Sally. Sally's rotten. That didn't come from, from Jesus on the cross. So if I say it came from self, well, God, guess what? It had to come from, in the term of this, my unsanctified self. The part of me, the, the, the self of me that's immature and undeveloped and un, untransformed by God. So if it can't really just come from a neutral self, because there is no real self, where could it come from? One place left. The devil. It's the only place that can come from. He is the source of the negativity that divides. You find yourself talking negative about another person. That negativity came from the enemy. The negativity that divides. He is the one who whispers those negative, divisive thoughts in your, in your mind. Why? Because he's an accuser and a slanderer and a liar. It's all part of his method to try to make us less than we are intended to be in Christ. And therefore limit who we are and what can be done through us.
The devil's scheme is to slander and accuse in order to breed division, breed hatred, breed, breed violence, breed competition in your heart and in your church and in your community and across this globe. So every time a marriage fails, this is his plan. He lied and he caused division. Every time a marriage fails, he wins. Every time a church splits, he has won. Every time a war is fought, he has won. Every time one person gets rich at another person's expense, he has won. Check that. Check your capitalism up against that. And I believe in capitalism to a point. Every time one gets rich at the expense of another, by swindling another somehow, he has won. All these things are opposed to the good and beautiful plan that God has for his people that then make up his church, that are then supposed to express to the world and for all eternity to the spiritual forces that God is glorious. That unity is, is destroyed through the slander of the enemy, pitting one against another. Listen, his tactic is to accuse and to slander others to you and maybe more damaging, slander you to yourself. In my opinion, in 53 years of walking, I think this is really the biggest problem. The devil slandering you to yourself. Because what happens when you slander you to yourself and you believe it, you'll destroy people around you anyways to lift yourself up. So he wins in every account. See, if you have met Jesus as Savior, then you are in Christ. You are seated in heavenly places, what Paul said in Ephesians already, in Christ. You have been given everything you need to succeed in Christ. To become the beautiful creation of grace that you really are and really are meant to become more of. But the devil wants you and me to be less than that. He wants you to believe you are damaged beyond hope. He wants you to believe there's no way out. He wants you to believe you are worthless. Or the opposite, and maybe worse yet. He wants you to believe that you, in and of yourself, are better than, or more deserving than, everyone else. So you can abuse and you can misuse others and put them down. He wants you to be less than your true identity in Christ. To live a limited and damaged existence. Listen, that's exactly what we see when we look at the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Do you remember what the devil's scheme was to derail Jesus? You say, oh, it was to jump off a pillar or, or you know, or... Turn bread into wine, or rocks, rocks into bread, that that was his scheme. No, it wasn't. He slandered him to himself. He slandered Jesus to himself. He attacked his true identity. In Luke chapter 2, and we're not going to read it right now because of time, but you look at it later today. You read Luke chapter 2 later today. And you find that each time the devil tempted Jesus, what did he do? He challenged his true identity. He said, if you are the son of God, then do this. 
If you are the Son of God, then do that. If you are the Son of God, then do that. He attacked Jesus' true identity. He slandered him. What he's saying is, you are not really the Son of God. You, these people might be deceived, but you're not really the Son of God. Listen, church. The devil is real. And he wants every one of us to live distracted, meager, fruitless lives that do not bring glory to God. He did it to Jesus, and he'll do it to us. He says to you and me, you're not really worthwhile. You're not really wonderful. You're not really worthy of the love of God and other people. He slanders you to yourself. Or he says, oh, no, you're really superior to everybody else. You know, what's the ultimate view of that? You get a Mussolini or an Adolf Hitler. They just believe the devil's a slanderer saying, your race is better than anybody else's race. Kill them. Gas them. That's how the devil operates. The devil is real. And he wants every one of us to live distracted, meager, fruitless lives that do not bring glory to God. That's what he wanted for Jesus, but Jesus overcame. That's what he wants for you and me, but in Christ, we overcome. We don't have to be afraid of his attacks, but we need to be aware of his attacks. And what I'm hoping you see today and the next coming weeks as I look at, as we look at how this stuff called the armor of God helps us stand firm against his attacks that are real and present every day. They happen to you this morning on your way to church. They happen to you today while you're in church. The devil's gonna say, the Lord's gonna give you some, some things saying, hey, but if you do these things, his attack, this is basically saying this, his attacks will be rendered impotent. That's what Jesus is saying in this section. He's real and he's powerful and he's, and he's aggressive and he's going to all to get you. But guess what? Be in Christ and act in these ways and live in these ways and have these beliefs and be aware of these stuff. And whatever he does will be completely powerless against you. That's spiritual warfare. The devil's attacking and attacking and attacking. Never tells us, we'll talk about this next week, he's never going to say to you, go fight the devil, go defeat the devil. Jesus didn't go defeat the devil. Not yet. He will. He said, stand opposed to him. Resist him. Here's the way you can win. You can stand firm in the midst of his attacks. You don't need to be afraid. I am not the slightest bit afraid of the devil. You know what I'm afraid of? Me being so obtuse that I don't see the attacks of the devil and I fall for his tricks. I'm not afraid of the devil and neither should you be. His scheme is to whisper lies into our ears about ourselves and other people. Don't believe the lies. Recognize the origin of them. Ask that question. Where did this thought come from? Friends, understand, God will never criticize you to yourself or others to you. God doesn't need you. He's not going to be telling you about me or me about you. Maybe in some rare case to save you from something that he might bring another person. But the voices in your head that are saying these negative things, these are not from God. That's your enemy. And that's his strategy. His name tells his strategy. He's a liar, a slanderer. That's who he is. So renounce the lie and speak the truth. Speak the truth. Say, that didn't come from God. Speak the truth. 
I am unconditionally loved by God and he wants the best for me today. That's the truth. That's why self-talk is so important. That's why we teach you in track. Self-talk is so important. You could call it called self-talk now, but for 2,000 years they simply called it morning devotions. They called it having your, um, your morning confession. Your morning confession is just saying the truth. The first line of my morning confession every day is, God, I thank you that you love me unconditionally and you want the best for me today. Because when a liar later says, Mark, you're a loser, you're no good, it's not going good, I go, oh, devil, we dealt with this already this morning. God says something different. I choose to listen to God and not to you. So we need to know the truth because let's say, you know the truth, the truth will do what? Set you free. It's free from the assaults of the devil, from living in an inferior life. Next, we'll talk about some people think they're going to go up to a mountain and pray the devil away. It doesn't work. Never has, never will. God will do that someday. You know what we get to do? We get to resist the devil. The Bible says this. If you resist the devil, what do you do? He'll flee from What did he do to Jesus? Jesus resisted him and he fleed. But what does it say Jesus did? What does it say the devil did from Jesus? He waited for another opportune moment to come and attack him again. That's what it says about Jesus. He waited, he left, and he waited for another opportune moment. So he's going to wait. He doesn't ever give up on you. So he's our enemy. That's his strategy. So renounce the lies and speak the truth. The truth. You are wonderfully loved by God and he wants the best for you today. That's truth. You are one in whom Christ dwells and delights. That's truth. That's the truth we teach you in our Wednesday night class on the Good and Beautiful God series. For nine months, we try to pound one truth into your head. You are one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and you live in a stable, unshakable kingdom of God. Take nine months to try to tear out all the things you believe that are contrary to that and pour in the truth. That's the truth of who you are in Christ. Let me close with this thought. It's our third statement. Know for sure. It's God's plan for his church to win by his strength. He started off in the first verse. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. He's saying, just be strong in me. That's our third statement. We did them in reverse order. It's God's plan for you to win by his strength. Not by yours. It's God's plan for you to be a winner but you're going to do it by his strength. We do not need to fear the devil. We can be the glorious church that reflects the wisdom of God by our transformed lives. That's God's will. That's what the whole book of Ephesians is talking about. And next week, what weapons he gives us to be victorious against his onslaught that never stops. How do we stand firm when he's saying he's doing these things? How do we stand firm? Stand with you this morning. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're amazing, that you show us the battle that's raging, and you tell us that we don't have to be worried about it as long as we just walk in your way. So, Lord, this morning for this wonderful church family that you have called each one by name and you love and you cherish. I pray, God, that what would happen today is that every person would know that they are loved by you. That every single one in this place would know that they're secure in you. 
Lord, there's some fear that, that keeps people back. There's some, it, it, it morphs into things. That... Today, you could break those things free in our lives, under them to you. So, Father, this day, help us to believe about ourselves what you believe about us. That we are ones in whom you dwell in delight. That we are beautiful and precious in your sight. That you're never going to walk away from us. That you don't love us one day and you're not angry with us the next because somehow we think we failed you, God. You chose us while we were nothing but failures. And you just love us. And you try to help us get better. So let your goodness and your grace now pervade this place as we spend some time in prayer. In Jesus' name.